Man, you come right out of a comic book. What? Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. Uh, just a drink. A martini, shaken, not stirred. Welcome to Screen Mayhem Extra, Special Edition. This episode, we're talking with our chief film critic, Paul Salt, about his experiences at the hugely popular uh, 62nd BFI London Film Festival. Welcome back, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, of course. So I've read about it. Um, obviously, never been there, so you're going to have to, you know, we're going to live through you. I'm very impressed with the festival scope. Um, I read that mm. over 200,000 people were in attendance. And then, uh, yeah, and then 300 films uh, from 50 different countries. So, yeah, like, how do you even decide what you're going to go to? <laughs> it's extraordinarily difficult to narrow down the actual uh, scope of the thing. As as a member of the press, you get given access to the films over a four-week period, maybe four-and-a-half-week period. Um, if you're just attending as just a sort of paying customer, um, all of those films are shown uh, within a 10-day period. Wow. In venues all across London, um, largely sort of contained within central London. So they're all within about 20 minutes of each other. But yeah, it's just a it's a huge undertaking. I'm constantly in awe. Are they always full like every show? Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how many sell out. If you actually during the festival, you can check in with the um, you can check in with the site and it will have a list of things. There are still tickets for this today, but um. It's actually it was actually even harder this year to get tickets for the um the galas. The galas are the big sort of mm-hmm. things where they have the celebrities and um special, you know, guests show up and you know uh, the favorite which was the one I really wanted to get into, the New York Yorgos Lanthimos film. That sold out before it even opened to um members, BFI members. Oh. It got sold out by sort of, you know, the very high ups. Right. So that was impossible. Um and actually, their server died <laughs> pretty much on the first day of booking. I saw a very humorous tweet where someone said, we're very sorry to announce that the hamster the BFI uses to f- um, power its website has passed away after years of faithful service. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's hilarious. Well, you gave me a list of the uh, films mm. that, uh, not all of the films you saw, but the ones in particular you wanted to highlight. And, uh, mm. you know, there are, I think there are reviews for every single one of these out at ScreenMayhem.com. So you guys can check Absolutely. that out. But we're going to start with uh, Happy New Year, Colin Burstead. Uh, I know that directed by Ben Wheatley and starring Mm. Sarah Baxendale. Um, Ben Wheatley, he seems like a really Mm. lovely guy. He does, yes. And I've seen him speak a number of times. And I really love Ben Wheatley because he's the complete mirror opposite of what you might expect a film director to be like. He's... um... He's, he's very much just like the bloke you meet down the pub in terms of the way in which he speaks and carries himself. Um, I first saw him uh, attending a film review uh, program that I go to and he was there defending the film Zardoz. Yeah. The Sean Connery, John Borman thing. He was there to just talk about how much um, oh, I fucking love Zardoz. <laughs> he was saying and it's just, yeah, he's, he's a very interesting filmmaker who doesn't mind uh, sort of working in genre and blending things. Um Happy New Year, Colin Burstead is very interesting in as much as I'm a little embarrassed because in my review, I refer to it as almost Shakespearean, 
in terms of how the plot <laughs> right. sort of carries itself. Um, it's actually a modern retelling of Coriolanus that I didn't spot. <laughs> um, That's awesome. <laughs> whoops. Um, actually, the original title of the film was Colin Uanus, <laughs> which is marvelous. But um, apparently the producers talked him out of calling it, calling it that because it would just become known as the Anus film. Right. And nobody's going <laughs> to nobody's going to go to the box office and ask for tickets to the Anus film. I would. <laughs> Yeah, there's something more joyous about Happy New Year, Colin Burstead. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, yeah. Yeah. Colin the Anus, I think I would have skipped it too. <laughs> I'm interested here. So <laughs> So you liked it? Oh, God, yeah. It's a, it's a fabulous film. It's one of his best. It's one of his most personal. It's um, ostensibly just about a, a family who come together in a country manner to um, discuss, uh, to, well, just to celebrate the new year. Um, and the family members include... Um, First of all, in the lead role, you have um, Neil Maskell as Colin. Um, Neil Maskell will be familiar to anyone who used to wa- who watched Utopia or has seen Wheatley's earlier films, um, Kill List. Mm-hmm. He's a wonderful actor. But also in the family, you've got Dune McKeegan, a British comedy actress um, who's hilarious as the sort of mum who complains about everything. Um, Charles Dance mm-hmm. as the um, somewhat inconspicuously cross-dressing um, uncle. Oh wow! Uh, that never actually that never actually gets brought up. Everyone just you know knows that about him. It's just yeah, that's Uncle Uncle um, Bertie. <laughs> um, <laughs> you've got oh fabulous turns by like Ash, Asim Chowdhury, a sort of British comedian who shows up as a friend of the family. Who uh, it's it's hard to explain just how wonderful all of these characters are. Um, but the the main problem is that another fabulous actress um, whose name slips my mind, Haley Squires. Um, who made her brilliant debut in I, Daniel Blake a few years ago. She is playing Colin's sister, who invites the brother, played by Sam Riley, to come to the celebration. Um, and everyone has problems with the brother. He's done some sort of horrible, unspeakable thing to the family, and it's all about the tension that his arrival is going to cause, and uh, whether or not anyone's actually going to have the guts to stand up to him. <laughs> so it becomes this very fraught emotional drama, but what I loved most about it is how relentless it is. It just keeps moving. I thought that it was just going to be the prologue that just keeps cutting between these family members, kind of chopping them off when they're halfway through a sentence and moving the action when they're doing something. But no, it's all the way through. It has this energy and it really recreates the frenzy of when a large group of people who haven't seen each other in a while suddenly get together. I love that feeling. Mm. <laughs> Um, all right, well, that's cool. Um, next one up uh, is huh. Suspiria. Yes. And remake, um, I mm. know, uh, it, was a, it was a Dario Argento film, right, originally, and now this uh, yes. this director is Lucha Guadagnino. <laughs> yes, absolutely, Luca Guadagnino. Okay, I did it, I did it, all right. And yeah, it has, <laughs> yeah. this is, a, you know, Dakota Johnson, Tilda Swinton. This is making... Um, huge waves uh at least on yes. my side of the pond so i've seen posters everywhere everyone's raving about it uh, how did it go down for you i well i'm very worried that suspiria is going to not get a fair shake precisely because it is a remake mm-hmm. of dario argento's um suspiria i adore the film i think it's fabulous but it does have a bit of an uphill struggle in terms of how different it is from its source material Dario Argento made a hugely crowd-pleasing slasher film, really. The, it's a giallo film, which is to say that most of the terror comes from a figure with black gloves who goes around knifing women, <laughs> you know, and, you know, in these great 
elaborate set pieces that are beautifully lit and all the rest of it. The fact that it also has in it, as part of its story, a um, dance school that is um, run by a coven of witches is almost incidental. You know, there's only actually one supernatural kill in the original, and that's when um, a blind man's guide dog is kind of hypnotized into attacking him, <laughs> which is, you know, exactly as campy and fun as it sounds. The The remake is very different. It's a movie about a dance school hosted or run by a coven of witches, and there's a lot of very heady themes going on there. It's um, There's something of the Holocaust to the whole thing, but in that really sinister kind of... Michelle Haneke's White Ribbon slash um, Childhood of a Leader kind of way, where the tension of a dinner sequence around a kitchen table somehow bespeaks the rise of fascism. You know, it's um, eerie early signs, even though it's set in 1970s, so it's long after it's finished, and yet there's this horrible sense that things are still lingering in the air. Mm -hmm. It's a very creepy film. There's one particular witchcraft-related death that is really horrifying and difficult to watch. It's a fairly grisly film. Let me ask you. But not necessarily in a crowd-pleasing way. Sure. Um, Dakota Johnson, she gets a lot mm. of um, criticism for being a very flat uh, actress. You know, she yes. doesn't bring a lot of emotion <laughs> to her roles. And um, it's a lot mm. of emoting, uh, just like, uh, you know, oh, Twilight, what's her face? How did she do? Yes. Did you feel like she, <laughs> she did well in this? Well, very much like Twilight, what's her face? She's now sort of... Um, keen once she's broken away from her big franchise it seems to do some very interesting work Mm -hmm. and yeah hopefully she will achieve the same level of success as Kirsten uh, Stewart because yeah she's um she's really good in this she's um very it's a very complicated role and I don't want to talk too much about it because it might start giving things away Mm -hmm. but yes she's um I'm sorry I just read the sentence that Tilda Swinton is in this film as a triple role and I only knew about two of them oh wow so Yes, she um she plays uh, just so anyone who watches this know. Oh my God, that's who she is. That's sorry, I'm just delighting in Tilda Swinton now. Um, Tilda Swinton plays Madame Blanc, the head of this school, but she also plays Doctor Joseph Kemperer, Klemperer, the investigator. So it's this male character under a lot of old age makeup, and I didn't spot it until half an hour in when I recognised mm-hmm. her voice. But she also plays Mother Helena Marcos, one of the creepy old um, witches at the heart of the place. That's Oh, that's fabulous. That's lovely. So Dakota Johnson is a little upstaged by Tilda Swinton, as anyone would be. I can imagine. But um Yeah, but she's still she's she's still wonderful. She's really good in this role. Alright, well cool. Let's move on. Um I'm mm. I'm very excited yeah. to see that. It's Yay. yeah, very, very excited. Um all right, so next up we have uh, Cohen Brothers. Uh, I didn't even hear about yes. this coming out. Uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, uh starring Liam Neeson, James Franco, and many others. Um, I guess yes. this is a, a anthology film? It sure is. It was actually developed as a, t- a television show for Netflix. It was going to be six episodes. Um, yeah, and it was going to run on Netflix only. But then it got edited down into a film. And it works really, really well. It's um, Every story kind of sets you up for the next one in terms of its tone. It's a film that gradually gets darker. Having said that, though, the very first story, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, features a character who I believe is the most terrifying character the Coens have sort of put on screen since Anton Chigurh. He's very scary in a very strange way, Um, but in a funny way. It's kind of, it's almost horrifically comedic, the first story, which is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Um, And that stars Tim Blake Nelson as Buster Scruggs, the singing cowboy, 
um, and also has a brief appearance of Biff Tannen, uh, whose real name I don't know, but he's in there um, in order to face off against Buster Scruggs. That's hilarious. Um, <laughs> you have um, then the second story, which is about a bank uh, thief who gets more well, than I, I gotta before. stop bank... you because I saw something in okay. the credits. I can't let you just go past the Kurgan uh-huh. is in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh right, which which one is that? David? No, Clancy Brown. No. And he doesn't. It oh, doesn't, Clancy Brown. Yeah, it doesn't say what what his name was in it um, on IMDb. But when I saw, I mean, I'll watch anything <laughs> with Clancy Brown in it. So <laughs> fantastic! I can't actually think. I'm worried I might be mixing him up with bus- with um, Biff Tannen. Oh, how frightening! Oh, I bet you are. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, it was the Kurgan. The worst. It was the Kurgan. Well, it's a fabulously amusing role that he plays. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. All right. Sorry. Go on. Yeah. Next segment. Oh, well, all the stories are great. The next one's about a bank robber who gets more than he bargained for. Mm-hmm. Then you've got a very eerie story about a man, Liam Neeson, playing a, um, like, what would you call him? An entertainer, but who, whose main artist is a man without arms and legs who's memorized all of these wonderful soliloquies. So Liam Neeson sort of just carries him from town to town <laughs> so he can perform for these crowds. It's um, a very strange story. All Gold Canyon is my favorite one. That's Tom Waits playing a prospector who Ooh. believes he's found a big nugget of gold. It's almost single-handed Tom Waits just looking for this gold piece, but it's fascinating and really arresting. Um, the Gal Who Got Rattled is about is Zoe, the fabulous Zoe Kazan playing um, a naive young woman who goes out on a, um, a wagon trail in order to uh, start a new life, only to get beset by Indians. Um, and the mortal remains is about six strange, five strangers who find themselves in a stagecoach, and there's something eerie about the coach. So, as you may have heard, there's kind of everything. All of the western settings are kind of in here. You've got a bank heist, you've got a wagon train, you've got a public hanging, and, um, and it's jewels. Cohen Brothers of all things putting these things together. It's yeah. going to be delightful. I have to ask because I asked about Dakota Johnson. Uh, this has uh, one of the most annoying freaking people in the world, named James Franco. How did he do as a, as a cowboy? <laughs> he doesn't say much. Yeah, oh, good. <laughs> if he can keep his mouth shut, I think he can. He, I can. La- I can last through his segments. He actually has one of the funniest lines in the film, <laughs> um, and it's one of his few lines. He spends most of the film just basically at the end of ropes. So, <laughs> oh, that sounds <laughs> this might awesome. Be the film for you. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Um, on to uh, we have next up. We have. Wild Rose, uh, directed by Tom Harper and mm. starring Jesse Buckley. Uh, this sounded very mm. fascinating. Yes, um, Jesse Buckley is very becoming this really sort of talent to watch after um, Beast. This also this year she sort of come up this year. Wild Rose is a film about a Glaswegian woman. She's uh, a young woman who has just gotten out of prison. She is a mother of two children that she had when she was very young. But more importantly to her is that she dreams of being a country music mm. star. Not country and western, she will stress. Um, yeah, so it's all about the conflict between her dream and her reality. The reality is that she has to be responsible for these two kids and she can't keep palming them off. Mm-hmm. On, her, on her mother, who's played by a brilliant Julie Walters, um, and just sort of absconded in order to pursue this dream. She has to be more of a realist than that, but it's about the pain that that causes her. And I, you see these sort of standard underdog stories quite a bit. The idea of, um, oh, you've got to do what it takes to make your dream happen. Yeah. Often there's a sort of, you know, wife and kids there to, you know, just be in the background. And then in the end, it all comes good. But never have I known that tension to be more so than in this. Um, 
any time she's doing either one of the things, you really get a horrible feeling that she really ought to be doing the other. Mm. And that's a really good balance that they've hit there. Um, and it's also just such a charming film. Maybe I can relate to it a bit too much because my mum's actually from Glasgow, but Julie Walters is the... Oh, um, she's the best. As as the mum in Marion. Uh, Marion. She just she just broke my heart. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. Um, mm. All right, well, cool. Um, I'm very excited right. to see that too. Uh, I'm actually going to have to look up and see like when these things are actually going to get released. It's kind of cool. I know some stuff, it's like actually yeah, yeah. in theaters, but it's part of the festival and yeah. other stuff, you know, it could be a year down the road before uh, I get a chance. Yeah, it actually could. Wild Rose, it says 19th of April, 2019 in the UK. So right. God knows. It can be ridiculous. And it actually, that can be something very frustrating about film festivals is you're just waiting for people to get the chance to actually come and see these things. I'm still waiting for everyone to get a chance to see Under the Silver Lake, which um, is the new film by the guy who directed It Follows. Mm -hmm. I saw it at Cannes and I loved it, but a lot of people didn't. And now I really want the public to get at it and people I know to get at it to see who's right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, Very, very frustrating. I noticed um, on a lot of these, we mean just doing promotion on them. You know, you go out there and you try mm. to find um, whether the companies have set up uh, Twitter or Instagram or Facebook pages or mm. anything like that. And a lot of them, like like this one, there was not a lot, just other people at the, yeah. at the film festival mentioning it. But, you know, it's like it hasn't hit its, uh, hit its uh, stride yet. No, it's got some time to build up buzz and... Um... Yeah, which it, which is a great thing because you're really getting to these films before anyone's come along to try and package them or figure out what their worth is. And that's that's really cool as well. Well, speaking of, um, how about The Assassination Nation? This looks so cool. Right. Uh, directed by Jesus. Sam Levinson <laughs> and starring Odessa Young, uh, Hari Neff and Sugi Waterhouse. Yeah, it looks yeah. looks terrific. <laughs> so the film starts with a very long trigger warning. Um, where it just flashes up. <laughs> this film is going to contain homophobia and sexism and male insecurities and all the rest of it. It's and it really once it does that, it's kind of like it's kind of like it just it forgives that because you've only yourself to blame now if you can if you stay and watch the film. Um, it's yeah, it's a really great modern retelling of kind of the witch hunts, but in a digital age. Uh, the premise is delicious. It's like the purge. It's just what would happen in a small town if everybody's shit got hacked. If all of the stuff, all of your search history, there's a great moment that summarizes the stuff that gets leaked where um, the main character, Lily Coulson, um, gets asked, what would you lose if, you know, all of your stuff got hacked? And um, she says something like um, life changing shit talk about half the people in this school, <laughs> um, some n- some nudes. Um a horrifying browser history and it's like this is this is what gets leaked this is what everyone gets to see and it just results in carnage everybody goes out and just (laughs) attacks everyone else but ultimately as i think gets said in the film people only are really happy when they find some women to persecute so the focal point of this rage sort of focuses in on lily and her three friends um as a sort of yeah source of this pain somehow it's through some contrivance that it just comes down to that um and yeah it's just a fabulously frenetic but very difficult to watch sometimes uh horror movie did um didn't wasn't this an episode of community (laughs) i swear the same thing happened (laughs) it may well have been well joel McHale is in this (laughs) he's an absolute monster this is this is like (laughs) the alternate dimension um community episode with more blood and gore and homophobia (laughs) yeah it's definitely got dark Joel McHale in it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's also got Bill, 
It's also got Bill Skarsgård in there, and he just brings terrifying with him wherever he goes. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> All right, well, um, next up we have In Fabric. Uh, Peter Strickland mm. directed it, and it stars Gwendolyn Christie, uh, Sidsy Knudsen, yes. and Carolyn Katz. Give us the goods. Mm. This uh, I love a ghost story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is so fabulous. If anyone's seen any Peter Strickland films, he's previously made Bavarian Sound Studio and um, The Duke of Burgundy, uh, two wonderfully unhinged um, uh, sort of films. One of them is a kind of conventional horror story about a guy who goes to be a sound engineer for um, trashy 70s uh, Italian horror films mm. and finds that doing the sound effects of people getting their heads cut off <laughs> is starting to get to his head. That's brilliant. Um the Duke of Burgundy is about a sadomasochistic lesbian relationship and where the power dynamics actually lie. Mm. And In Fabric is about a haunted dress that ruins the life of anyone who owns it. So, Oh, that's going to be wonderful. <laughs> it's so good. It's so bizarre. Um, but really quite heartfelt. It comes first to Marianne Jean-Baptiste, um, who's a very familiar character actress to um, anyone who's a fan of like Mike Lee films. She was in Secret and Lies and such. Um, and she plays a very down-to-earth kind of London Cockney mum. So when she goes to this bizarre vampiric dress shop run by utterly surreal characters, like um, Richard Bremer plays the the owner, Mr. Lundy, who looks like Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. And my favourite character in the thing is Fatima Mohammed. She plays Miss Luckmore. She's a Romanian actress, and but I think her accent is somewhere between Italian and French. Oh, wow. Um, and she's here to sort of offer these extraordinary, bizarre, overly worded um, sales pitches for the dress, you know, talking about <laughs> opportunities and openings. And it's just great seeing this sort of London mum sort of interact with this bizarre seductress. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Very exciting. And it's just hilarious. It's got hilarious performances throughout. Julian Barrett and um, Steve Oram show up in order to be the two very fusty sort of strange owners of um, the bank that um, Sheila works in. Hayley Squires, again, uh, previously mentioned in Colin Bursted, plays Babs. And there's a um, her husband is this plumber who has this supernatural ability to speak so boringly that it actually sends people into a sort of... What's the word? Um, trance. <laughs> <laughs> so... He's actually sort of requested a, a couple of times throughout the film if to sort of talk plumbing to them so that they can go into this strange <laughs> other place. I love it. I love it. Oh, so this has uh, this has uh, Brienne of Tarth, of course, and, and because of all the fans yes. of Game of Thrones, um, they want her to become a superstar. So she's now star- showed up in yes. the Star Wars universe, and here she is. Um, how did she do? Yes. You won't recognize her at first. She plays the love interest for Marianne Jean-Baptiste's son. Okay. Um, and she's wearing a long black wig and a lot of makeup. And she plays this kind of very bitchy young woman who um, is sort of there to represent all of um, Marianne Jean-Baptiste's anxieties because, you know, she's getting older and Gwendolyn Christie comes along as this sort of youthful harpy. <laughs> it's very, it's very, she plays it beautifully. She's very funny. I love it. Well, <laughs> another one to be very excited for, and I'll, I'll check out his other ones. I, I hadn't heard of, I yeah, hadn't yeah. heard of him at all. So I'm very excited that you get to bring these things to me and uh, hook me up. <laughs> yeah, he's one of the stranger people working in um, genre of fiction at the moment. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, next up is Roma, uh, directed by Alfonso yes. Cuarón, something close to that. Yeah. Um, starring <laughs> a bunch of uh, bunch of people: <laughs> Yalitza, mm-hmm. yep, Aparicio, Marina Tavira. Yeah. How, how was yeah. 
what's Roma? What's Roma like? Roma is sublime, is a good way to put it, I think, in as much as it is awe-inspiring. It's an entirely mundane story. I mean, for Quaron, this is a very straightforward, kind of down-to-earth, literally considering, you know, his previous works, story of just a maid working in Mexico City in the 1970s, early 70s. She works for a family who are very rich and kind of eccentric. She herself has her own dynamic including a sort of love interest who's part of this bizarre martial arts cult who sort of go to a big open space to practice um carter together but which um is actually a sort of weird training ground for some sort of i don't know uprising i don't know mexican history well enough to know exactly what it is that's going on it's some sort of protest um and it's just about the extraordinary ordinary if that makes sense. The incredible bits of beauty that exist in everyday life, even though it's his most down-to-earth story, there are breathtaking sequences, including one of his signature one, you know, one-take epic sequences, which involves her venturing into the ocean with the waves crashing against her to retrieve the two children of the family she mades for. And it's just breathtaking. It's one of the most extraordinary and exhilarating things I've seen all year. And it's just, you know, a woman wading into the ocean to retrieve two children. But he just has this way of filming things that's beautiful. Yeah, that's one. I'm, I, I saw some um, screenshots from it and uh, some video sequences. Mm. And it is just gorgeous. So I yeah. think it's something that I could just, <laughs> I don't know, get inside of and, and just live in that. You know, it's... Oh god, yeah. we, it's so evocative, right? Yeah, we see so many stories from Mexico, and it's usually mm. sh- just um, showing off the poverty or the corruption. Yeah. But to go back to the seventies and and just uh, be in this life of this middle class family and see what it was like, I don't know. I think it's a it's a much maybe not as uh, common picture, but a much more real thing to to consume. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 sumptuous almost in its depiction of the um, society. And there's this wonderful. I don't know if it's like it's it's got great metaphoric value, but there's this great image of this guy trying to cram his incredibly large sort of new luxurious car into his tiny old fashioned garage and sort of hitting everything on the way in. <laughs> and it has this sort of comedic potential to it. Well, I love it. I'm very, very much looking forward to that. Um, next up, we have something I feel like I read once that this had just been sitting um, in production hell forever or something like that. But it's, yeah, yeah Terry Gilliams, um, the man who killed Don Quixote, <laughs> um, starring Adam oh. Driver, Jonathan Price, Stellan Skarsgård, to name just a few. Mm. What do you know? Yes. Well, that is quite an, quite an understatement, really. I mean, its production is ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's been going since 1989. <laughs> it's been filmed twice, I think. Um, there's great. There's a great movie called Men of Lamentia, or Man of Lamentia, right. which is about his ridiculous attempts to try and bring this film to life. And the, you know, sets beset by storms and terrible um, producers who try to make off of all the money and sue him. And actually, it's still not entirely clear whether or not he's going to be able to screen this goddamn thing. Um, It was at Cannes, and I wasn't allowed in because I had a level of press clearance that didn't allow me to see the film because of the the rights issues. So I couldn't see it at Cannes. I bought a ticket in the end for this thing um and i'm gonna keep this ticket because it feels kind of like history you know this is the first this is a ticket for the very first public screening of the man who killed don quixote on british um british soil 
So that feels fairly, fairly momentous. Um, it is, it's important that you keep all of that out of your mind when you're thinking about reviewing a film. You know, just because something was very difficult to make doesn't make it a better film. And what's perhaps most disappointing about The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is just how conventional it is. Um, it really, it feels a lot like his Brothers Grimm film, mm-hmm. which he made, you know, tw- um, 10 years ago now, maybe getting on for 20. It's comedically, it's really old fashioned and not particularly funny. It actually has in it the gag where a guy is dreaming of kissing a beautiful woman and then it cuts to real life and he's actually being licked by an animal, <laughs> which is just one of the oldest gags. And that's in the mask. That is hilarious. <laughs> it, it's yeah, it, it's it's that kind of gag. It's that kind of dynamic. I mean, the premise is Adam Driver is a director. It's very self-aware who goes to film. Um, he's going to make a commercial which features Don Quixote in it. Um, and he remembers that he once tried to film Don Quixote when he was a student. And he's shocked to discover when he goes to revisit some of the old sets that the man he hired to play Don Quixote, who was just this local shoemaker, actually came to believe he was Don Quixote and has been living as him ever since. Um, which is a very fun premise, the idea that this guy's been in character despite the fact that filming finished 20 years ago. Um, and Jonathan Price puts it, his all into the performance of Don yeah. Quixote, as does Adam Driver as the director. It's two very good performances. Um, and it was quite heartening because Jonathan Price keeps playing dicks. <laughs> the last few things I've seen him in, he's been the High Sparrow in Game right. of Thrones. He was in, he was in The Wife as the um, this horrible sort of self-obsessed egotist and now in this he plays this sort of very absorbed character and the effect is i think i'm turning against jonathan price yeah he was actually at the screening and he seemed like a lovely guy but every time i see him now it's just oh you well he was tired of being the the gentle you know the confused you know he he plays plays bad really well and adam driver he's one of those guys he does i thought you know first off you know he was in that um Oh, he was in the, 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 sorry, the, uh, it'll come back around. Anyway, he's one of those people, I'm just, I I see him and I'm thinking he's going to suck. And then he gives a really awesome performance (laughs) and blows my mind. And then I see him in like Star Wars and I'm like, oh, see, he does suck. He's just groaning and being weird. But then, yeah, you see him, he's in something like this. I have a pretty open mind, you know? (laughs) I like Kylo Ren, goddammit. But I also, I mean, Adam Driver, just for me, always gets a pass because he was in Patterson, which is one of the most beautiful and sort of tender films yes. ever made. So I'll always love him for Patterson. But he's wonderful in this as this sort of self-obsessed director who kind of finds redemption, I guess. I don't know. It just it, it just didn't really wow me. It's a very It's a very inventive film visually, which is what Gilliam has always been good at. But... In terms of, you know, them talking about, oh, God, all of the drafts we did, it's amazing that this finally got done. It's like, maybe it needed a couple more. Yeah. Maybe another decade or two. Well, I'm excited to see it. Um, I, anything that Terry yeah, sure. Gilliam um, creates for me is just um, perfect. So, I mean, I, I, I had problems like everyone <laughs> else did with this or that. I, I have a really, really wide open uh, mind for him. I don't. I don't care. I really don't. Fair enough. I'm gonna watch it. I'm gonna love it. Some of my <laughs> hey, favorites in the world. It's yeah. very interesting. At the very least, it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, right, well, cool. So uh, next in our list is Shadow, uh, which is also called Ying, uh, and that is a uh, uh, Yamao Tseng as the director, and uh, it has. Uh, I guess the according to this, the main character is a person named Jing, uh, played by Chao Deng, and uh, his. 
wife, uh, Lisa. Ooh, I'll let you take it. You know, these things are never quite right in how they're lined up. So Yes. At this stage, they're always a little out. But actually, the most important character... Yes, Chow Deng. He plays... Um, I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly. Sorry. He plays a dual role. He plays Commander and Jing. And the premise of the film is very much like um, Ka- uh, Kagamusha. It's yeah. um, the idea that important figures would often have doubles sort of disguised as them in order to avoid assassination attempts. Um, it's a little more confusing than that because you've got this guy who is the king of pay, played by Ryan... Ooh, how do they pronounce Zed? J? I think it's J, so it'd be Jeng. Ryan Jeng, I think. He plays the king of pay. Okay. And he is served by a commander who is this uh, played by um, Chao Deng. Um, but it's not actually the commander. The commander has been injured in battle and is currently hidden beneath the city where he trains his um, shadow oh, I love this. Um, commander in order to defeat the head of the um, rival army, who I assume is this Captain Tian, um, in a duel um, using special techniques that they've developed. So, yeah, it, it has a marvelous sort of old fashioned martial arts premise. Um, and it's Zhang Yimou, so it's got this wonderful scale to it it's um a lot of it is in camera there's not much cgi assistance um and it's just really breathtaking to look at the cinematography has largely been inspired by old ink brush mm-hmm. paintings but i think charcoal is a more accurate way of thinking about the imagery it's largely black and white but it's not filmed in black and white is the crucial thing so the, everybody's still got their flesh tones mm-hmm. And everything like that, but all of their outfits, the sets, the things they're using are all just shades of grey. And it has this marvellous textural effect, mm. which really invokes the sort of settings. Um, there's nothing, in terms of the martial arts, I, uh, there's nothing quite as breathtaking as, you know, Jet Li versus Donnie Yen and Hero, mm. but, you know, few things are. But there's still some very inventive fights involving these razor-bladed umbrellas everybody's using there's this um idea that the only way to defeat the opponents is to embrace a more feminine fighting style um which is very interesting and the two female leads um lee sun as madam uh xiaotong guan um they, they both play these female characters who are very fun and you know one of the great things about martial arts films in general is that often the female characters are just as capable of getting into a scrap as the male counterparts um and this is certainly no exception so yeah, it was a really entertaining yeah. film. I'd have to say this one is probably on the top of my list. Uh, I'll just keep my eye out. Do um, <laughs> you know when it when it's re- getting released? Or well, it got released in September in China. Mm-hmm. They've definitely got a good subtitled version. Really? So hang on, uh, USA. Oh, oh, that's a festival. I hate it when it does that. It will say a date, but then it'll say. So it was at Fantastic Fest, which is in America. Okay. Um, yeah, nineteen. Yeah, that's the only other day. I'll, I'll take it for October, soon. Which was the <laughs> festival. Yeah, it should be soon. Yeah. I hope. All right. Well, cool. So uh, we have a couple more uh, before you finish up. Um, the mm-hmm. next one is "They Shall Not Grow Old." Uh, it is a documentary right. about World War One, with never seen footage to commemorate commemorate the centennial of the end of the war. And the director is Peter Jackson. What? Yes. What? It is. Who is commem? <laughs> He is commemorating his grandfather, who was apparently an Anzac soldier. Um, actually, no, I think he was an English soldier. And um, so, yeah, it, it's it is that it is a memorial to World War One, and it is using footage of the conflict, which Jackson and his uh, team of special effects people have gone in and colorized 
which is not necessarily something new, but they have also added diegetic sound. So if you see someone on screen laughing or sort of talking with his mate, you'll hear them now, which is something that was not captured at the time. Um, and if you see people walking, you'll hear the sounds of marching. So it really does bring to, to life this footage in a very unique and hard-to-stomach way. Um, everybody in the UK learns about World War One and trench warfare and what it was like to live in the trenches, but it's hard to really capture the the feeling the idea of it that these aren't soldiers these are regular men who were encouraged to go and fight who were in some cases made to um definitely pressured by society around them and there's these re- this very horrific insights into the mindset of these men who go and some of them are just like well you know it's the thing to do isn't it you just you know you get the call you've got to go others talk about being pressured by not wanting to be considered cowards and you know, not being served in shops because, you know, young men shouldn't be here. They should be over there. And this horrible sense of that you have to go. Um, and what's, what's more scary is the, the men. Oh, sorry. The whole film has audio, which is interviews with World War One soldiers, wow. um, presumably captured a while ago. Um, they just talk about the mindset where it's just like, well, yeah, you go you go and do this and you do think, oh, I might die doing this. But, you know, you just kind of accept it and think, well. Hopefully it'll be quick if it happens, you know. Um, And they talk about the shades of fear where it's like you don't worry about snipers because if you get hit by a sniper, it's instant. But you worry about gas, you know, you worry about shrapnel taking off a limb or something. And it's just it's horrible to hear them sort of rationalize all of this and think these are intelligent thinking people who are just, you know, contemplating their death in these various horrible ways. There's something darkly comedic to the casualness with which they approach it. Right. And this seems like um, a really kind of logical turn for the war movie genre, considering mm. people have gotten bored with everything else. So I I think, do you remember mm. the, the one where Brad Pitt got stuck in the tank? I mean, nobody just, nobody cares anymore. <laughs> so if you're going to do something, I think this is the, this is the style to do it in. Make it a more of a documentary and tell us something real. Mm. Don't show us something. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Yeah, and that's one of the things I loved about um, Nolan's Dunkirk yes. was that it was a conflict not many people knew about, really, the the evacuation of Dunkirk, especially outside of Britain. So I think it's interesting to turn the cinematic eye to less known about e- episodes, and I feel like World War One doesn't quite get the focus yeah. it should. But um, yeah, this is a wonderful testament to a huge you know, international tragedy, yeah. really. Well, I look forward to that one as well. So our last one, um, I I believe, mm. uh, is was kind of a big release, uh, Dragged Across Concrete. Um, it's uh, S. Craig Zahler as the mm. director, but it has uh, internationally yeah. well-known um, racist Mel Gibson, <laughs> Jennifer, Jennifer <laughs> Carpenter, yep. and Vince Vaughn. Yep, it sure does. <laughs> <laughs> so... This was probably my biggest disappointment at the festival. I'm a huge fan of S. Craig Zahler. I loved Bone Tomahawk, and I really liked um, Brawl and Cell Block 99. They both had these wonderful sort of throwback, genre-bending, incredibly violent, uh, humorous, tongue-in-cheek films. Um, Dragged Across Concrete was a little bit more mean-spirited in a way that I wasn't really prepared for. It's, it sets itself up as this, I mean, with a title like that, it sets itself up as this very hard-edged cop drama. But I'm not entirely sure as to what end other than to just provoke. Mm-hmm. And that's not something I'm very interested in. I mean, hiring Mel Gibson 
to play an old-time cop who is a racist, who is a misogynist. And in the end, that kind of gets the better of him. Like, the fact that he's unwilling to trust um, a black man is kind of his undoing. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, just spending the whole film with this guy, when the film is kind of just matter-of-factly showing his attitude, his motivation throughout the film to take part in the... um, the robbery that is at the center of the film is that he wants to move his daughter out of a predominantly black area before she gets raped. And the film kind of supports the idea that it might yeah. happen. So yeah, I don't know what to make of this one really. It's um it's still got that hard edged S. Craig Zala thriller quality to it, but it's just it's yeah, it's I couldn't get over the idea that this film is just trying to irritate people <laughs> and trying to offend snowflakes, you know, and that's not something I was that interested in. It's 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 got some interesting sequences, and and the thing with Jennifer Carpenter yeah. is that she plays a new mum. She's unrelated to much of the other characters. She's just a new mum who didn't want to go out to work, but her she's better qualified than her husband, so she can make more money by staying in work than her husband can. And because she went out and went to work instead of staying home with her baby, she gets involved in a bank no. robbery. So there's kind of a feeling of sermonizing there, which um, I wasn't terribly fond of. I don't know. I, I really didn't know what to make of Drive to Cross Concrete. I want to give it the benefit of the doubt and say that it was actually interrogating some of these concerns and anxieties. But it does have the feeling of, look at me yeah. about it. Yeah, I remember um, <laughs> in, in back in the 90s, I think uh, we, we saw a lot of films like just trying to create an, an emotional response around gory mm. things happening that were very realistic yeah. I don't know. I think of the extended uh, rape scene in the in the tunnel, you know, and it's just stuff like that. It's it's irreversible. You know, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I don't know. It's kind of I I agree. Like looking at his other movies, I hadn't seen either of them because they both both the mm. names and the look of the cover. I just kind of <laughs> went. Mm, I think I'm gonna skip it. I'm not. I'm not that young anymore. <laughs> I don't need to always have everything poured all over me. So. Um, it is a young thing, isn't it? I was very interested when I was young in stuff like South Park, where it's like, yeah, right. let's push those boundaries. And when you get older, maybe you just get a little... It, it feels less important. <laughs> it feels like this kind of obscenity isn't maybe isn't the radical punk statement that the people behind it think it is, and it might just be a little bit more boring than that. Yeah, and there's so much real darkness out in the world, you know, and all of these crime shows sure. we're doing and all of the <laughs> stuff that's happening. I'm not positive that the ki- those kinds of boundaries need to be pushed much further <laughs> than what we see in everyday yeah. life. That's Just true. saying. All right, well, those are wonderful <laughs> analysis. Um, I enjoyed each yeah. of your reviews on these. Um, guys, check them out. ScreenMayhem.com, of course. Uh, and uh, anything else you want to add? Oh, no, not at all. I would highly recommend getting involved with a film festival. It can be a very exhausting process. Um, the British, the London Film Festival kind of marks the end of the film festival period, which starts up again with sort of Cannes and Sundance in um, March slash April kind of time next year. But there is something wonderful to a festival. It's a celebration of film and everything that you go and see feels somehow special. And that can be a really cool thing, even if it can be a bit exhausting and overwhelming as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Paul. This is, uh, again, very excellent. And uh, until next time. Thank you very much.